0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of James in our last session. We looked at the second half of verses 2 through 12. 2 through 12 revolves around this idea of trials and how to respond to those trials. And what's not obvious in most English translations is that verses 13 through 18 is linguistically connected to verses 2 through 12. It's connected specifically by the word temptation. The word translated trial in verse 2 or trial in verse 12 is pyrosmos. Well, the word translated temptation or related to Tempt, in verse 13, is the verb form of pyrosmos. And so we've, we're connected linguistically, verbally, by this common word. And that is very frequent in James. That's one of James's main ways of connecting thoughts together, is through a key word, a common word. And so we're still dealing with trials and temptations. And let's just clarify the meaning of this word, the word pyrosmos in As a noun, is a trial, but it can also be a temptation. And the basic idea of the word pyrosmos is it's some sort of test, and it can be a test that comes from outside you, hence a trial test. It can also be a test that comes from within you, hence a temptation test. One is a test of your faithfulness because of the circumstances of life. One is the a test of your uh, faithfulness because of a temptation to do wrong, to break God's laws. And so it can be a trial test or a temptation test. And so verses 13 through 18, what we'll look at in the session is directly connected here um, to the previous by really raising the question, of the way you respond to a test can make it a temptation. It, It can become a temptation to do what's wrong. And this particular question that James is going to ask and answer in verses 13 through 18 is who's to blame for temptation? And the answer he wants to give is God's not to blame for temptation. We ourselves are. In fact, the way James essentially says it, if we boil it all down, is we can only blame ourselves for temptation, not God. And that's really the main point of verses 13 through 18. Notice the way the paragraph begins. In verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So let's just make sure we understand the what's going on here. We understand kind of the theology and the logic behind this. The picture is that someone is experiencing a temptation test, And they want to blame God for it. It's God's fault. God made me this way. God made me do it. I can't help myself. If God didn't put these evil things in the world, I wouldn't be tempted by them. It's God's fault. So he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Don't blame God for temptation. Um, Why not? Well, that's what he explains in the second half of verse 13. Notice what he says. For God cannot be tempted by evil. One simple fact about God's character and God's nature is that God is immune to temptation. He is not able to be tempted by evil. God simply is of a character that temptation isn't attractive to him, and thus God is immune to temptation. He cannot be tempted by evil, and so he doesn't himself tempt anyone. God's not the source of temptation. That is just not part of his character, and so don't blame God for temptation. Now, just to clarify that point a little bit, we do see throughout the Bible that God allows men to be tested. He puts people in positions where their faith is tested. I think of, for example, Job or even Abraham, right? Like, God does allow people to be tested. But the point being made here in James is that God doesn't entice them to immoral, sinful behavior. That's not what God does. So God does not tempt people to to do evil. Now, people can choose evil, and God does allow people that choice. In fact, you even see clear back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, there was a choice to be made. Will you be loyal to God or not? And so God does allow that, and I think there's good reasons for God to allow that so that our loyalty to him and our devotion to him is freely chosen and thus uh, genuine and legitimate. And so God allows us to make real choices between good and evil, but again, he himself does not entice anyone to do evil, and that's the point James is making here. Well, if God's not the source of temptation, what is the source? And that's where James goes next in verses 14 and following. James begins to describe where temptation originates from. And so this this little subsection in this paragraph really deals with what almost could be called the dynamics of temptation. And as such, it's incredibly helpful to us for developing a strategy for dealing with and overcoming temptation. And so it's incredibly helpful to our spiritual growth. So we should pay really close attention to what James says here and think very clearly about what he says here for our own walk with God and our own spiritual growth. He says this in verse 14. He says, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Literally, this verse reads, Each one is tempted by his own lust being carried away and enticed. I think it's important to hear that literal translation so we realize the direct connection that the the fountainhead, the first step in temptation, is our own lust the way it's translated here. And we usually associate that word lust with uh, sexual temptation, sexual sin. And so it's good for us maybe to understand that that word lust is broader than that. It's actually just the word desire. Uh, It's not just sexual desire or sexual lust that's in mind. It's desire in general. And so any sort of strong desire is really... James's point is the fountainhead, the necessary first ingredient to temptation. The desire itself isn't necessarily wrong. Hunger is a strong desire, uh, but it can lead to gluttony. Sleepiness and fatigue is a strong desire, and it's not bad, but it can lead to laziness. Sexual desire is a strong desire, and God created us with it. In fact, it's part of God's good world. It's not wrong in and of itself, but it can lead to immorality and sensuality and illicit sexual behavior. So the desire itself isn't the sin, but the desire is what temptation plays off of. It's necessary to the temptation in order to lead us to sin. And so our own desires are... A necessary ingredient in temptation and for example you could put me personally in a room with all the alcohol in the world and there's no temptation towards drunkenness zero I have no desire to that um, I don't even like the feeling, you know, of a minor little buzz from drinking an occasional beer, right? I don't like that. I have no desire to, to, to drink and drink and drink and drink and get drunk. Zero. But you put me in a room with other things with which I have a strong desire and those desires now are tending in a sinful direction Now temptation has a beachhead in my heart and I'm going to have to deal with that, right? That's James's point, is that um, if we're going to take an honest and hard look at temptation, well, it begins with the desires we allow to grow within ourselves and then temptation tugs at and pulls at and it plays off of and entices us based on those desires. And so sinful actions begin at the level of desire. That is James's point. And notice what he says there in verse 14 is that when we are enticed and carried away by those desires, when those desires trick us and trap us into not seeing the consequences of our behavior and making poor choices, sinful choices, that's what leads to sin. And so starts with desire. It starts to being really tricked and trapped by those desires and being enticed by those desires in a sinful way. And then verse 15 continues the sequence. James says, then, continuing the sequence, then when lust, that is when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And he's using this imagery of conception and birth to picture what happens to our desires. And so you have this this desire that is being twisted and played off of and enticed by temptation. Now it's been conceived, I think, in actual kind of practice of the sequence of sinning, we should think of that conception as when we entertain that desire, when we entertain that enticement in the wrong direction, in the sinful direction, when we maybe even begin to plan how we might carry out or fulfill that desire in some sort of illicit and sinful sort of way. That's the conception. We don't just shoo the desire away. We don't just shut it down immediately. We entertain it. We dwell on it. We let it to We let it sit around for a little bit. We maybe even uh, kind of conceive of how we could uh, fulfill that desire. At that moment, we're trapped. And James says, now it gives birth to sin. And so desire, being tricked and enticed, now conceiving and entertaining, and all of a sudden, that leads to sin. And that's the sequence of how sin begins. It begins and, it, and with our desires, and then enticing and dwelling on, and conceiving and sinning, and then he goes on in verse fifteen and says, "When sin is accomplished, when, when it's carried out and conductive, it leads to death. It brings forth death. And so, um, sin promises good, promises pleasure, promises all these things, but really it's a dead end street. It brings forth death. It." gives birth to, it leads to condemnation and death, which is in sharp contrast to the pleasure and the life and the excitement that it promises and yet fails to deliver on. Now, before we look at the rest of this paragraph and see where James goes next, let's just pause right here and reflect briefly on this sequence that James has shared with us And let us learn some lessons for our own spiritual growth from it. First off, well, what about the devil? Isn't he involved in temptation? Yes, right? Scripture routinely tells us that. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but you should resist him. That's 1 Peter, right? So we know the devil's involved in temptation. He's called the tempter we know he's involved. James isn't trying to eliminate the devil's role or responsibility. He's trying to emphasize our own individual responsibility, that we are responsible. Don't blame God for something you're responsible for. It's really easy to do and so James is highlighting and emphasizing our own individual responsibility. Um, Second, when we look at this sequence I would also say that it's really important, therefore, for us to realize that since desire is the fountainhead of sinful behavior, it's not enough just to manage our behavior, though it might be a necessary first step. Uh, Ultimately, we want to have our desires transformed so that temptation does not have really any material to play with in our life. It doesn't have any fuel to fire its... Passions and its desires, right? And so, ultimately, the what needs to change is our desires, so that we don't desire what's wrong, but instead we desire what's right. That's why Augustine was famously said, "Love God and do what you want," because as your love for God grows and increases, you'll begin to love what God wants, and your desires will be the things that please and uh, uh, God, and the, the things that God desires. And since God Himself is so pure that He can't be tempted by wrongdoing, the more we love God, the more we'll be able to do whatever we want, because what we want will be what God wants. And so we need our wants to change. And that's one of the major implications of this section for us with regard to our spiritual growth, is that we should pray regularly for, and put things in place in our life for, our desires themselves to be sanctified and transformed by the Spirit of Christ within us. Okay. Now, continuing on in this paragraph, James, in verse 16, then goes on and says, Don't be, be- deceived, my beloved brethren. And you could almost put a colon after that. He wants He's continuing this idea of don't blame God. It's not God's fault when we sin. God doesn't lead us into evil. So don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be tricked to think that God is the source of temptation and evil of sin and death. Well, that's a deception. That's a lie. In fact, it's the very first, um, it's the very first deception lie. Look back at where the very first sin occurred in the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, and the devil deceives um, Adam and Eve into thinking that God's holding out on them, that God knows that they they really you know would be better off if they have this, and so. To doubt God's character is at the heart of temptation. So don't be deceived, my, my brethren. And then James goes on. And he goes on and tells us what he doesn't want us to be deceived about. Here's the truth. Here's what you need to know. Verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so... God isn't the giver of bad gifts, and God doesn't lead us into evil. Rather, God is the giver of good gifts, and every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from him, comes from God himself, coming down from the Father of lights. A unique description for God there, the Father of lights. And so God is the giver of good gifts, and they come from him. What does Father of lights refer to? Well. The light that that James seems to have in mind by virtue of the language he uses here is the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, that God is the father of lights. He seems to be referring to God's role as creator. So he is the father, the creator of all the heavenly lights. And those lights are predictable. Those lights, yes, they vary, they shift, but they do so in predictable patterns that we can actually judge things by. And so James goes on and says, With whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. Those heavenly lights move, they shift. We tell in their day, they would tell time by virtue of a sundial, right? The shadow on a sundial would help them identify what hour of the day it was. But God Himself, He doesn't vary or shift, He doesn't change, He is consistent in His goodness. He is consistent in the fact that he gives good gifts, and not just to some people, but to all people. In fact, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that God's not fickle or capricious, that he he sends his son on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that God is the giver of every good gift as the creator of everything and of all people. And so we don't serve a capricious God who one day is in a good mood and gives good gifts and the next day is in a bad mood and you, and you don't know ever what's going to happen. The pagan gods in the ancient world, they're, those gods are they are fickle and capricious and unpredictable. But the true God, the creator God, the one who made the heavenly lights and made everything in this world, he's the giver of good gifts and you can count on that. And in fact, in verse 18, James goes on and says, Here here is one clear evidence of God's goodness. Here's a good gift he gave. Verse 18 says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Um, Literally, it says, in the exercise of his will, literally is having willed. It's probably causal, meaning because God willed it so, because of his will. Here's something that God willed. Because of his will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, referring to regeneration, referring to the new birth. Um, So God gave us birth. He brought us forth. It's the idea of giving us birth and this this second birth, being born again. And, And so the point seems to be that this good, giving, unchanging God gave us birth, and so were his children. And we can expect to receive good things from his hands. So don't doubt God. Don't mistrust his goodness and his faithfulness. That's what leads to temptation and sin in the first place. And notice it says he brought us forth by the word of truth, by the message of truth, the proclamation about uh, Jesus, by the proclamation of true things. Um, And so he says we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. The first fruits. Now remember, James is a Jew writing to Jewish Christians the first fruits under the uh, old covenant and in the law were offered to God as like the first part of your crops from your field. Uh, and they were offered to God and they were thus sacred. And so James's point is we, meaning his original audience, he and his, the, those first Jewish believers in Jesus early on in church history, they were like the very first offering of God's new people formed in the Messiah. Um, that as Blomberg and Camel say in their commentary, the first generation of Christians anticipated the rebirth or new creation of many more redeemed people in future ages, and so they are like the first fruits offered to God, and there's more to come, and so we are like the first fruits, he says, among God's creatures. The point here is that God is a giver of good gifts, and in His goodness, He brought us forth to be His children, and so we can count on Him and we can trust Him. And so, what we see in this whole section, going clear back to verse 2, really, is that James presents two ways of responding to trial tests and temptation tests. A person can respond out of evil desires, and those evil desires then turn the trial test into a temptation test, and that leads to sin. Or we can respond out of Uh, faith and faithfulness, trusting in our good father, um, that God gives good gifts. And if we do that, if we trust in him and don't doubt God's goodness, well, then that will lead us to stand firm and to be faithful all the way to the end. And so really underlying all of this is this theology of God's goodness and God's trustworthiness that we ourselves can trust him. And if we do so, then God will ultimately give us the crown of life, which he's promised to all those who love him. And so don't blame God for your temptations. Don't point the finger and say, well, it's God's fault. He made me this way. I can't help it. Trust God, who's the giver of every good gift.